the observations of Titan are taking place over a couple of different uh, time periods, but basically stretching from early October to early November. Right. So we should get images in October. Uh, the first images uh-huh. from Webb of Titan. Right. We'll be very excited to look at those and see if there's uh, dramatic changes mm-hmm. since uh, Cassini. Welcome. AstroTalk UK is a not-for-profit podcast on astronomy, science, and spaceflight. Launched in 2008, it's produced by me, Guru Beer Singh, a writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education but frankly, it allows me to meet fascinating people doing interesting things. It's primarily for my own education, and I share it as a free educational resource. No ads, no subscriptions, and you don't need to log in. For more, see the About page on astrotalkuk.org. Episode 103, Observing the Solar System with the James Webb Space Telescope. The JWST has already wowed astronomers and the general public with some incredibly spectacular deep space images. But did you know NASA has set aside a substantial number of hours for JWST to observe objects within the solar system? What's more, that program kicks in this autumn, so some images of planets and their moons along with asteroids and comets, will be published before the end of this year. A team of astronomers, including planetary scientist Dr. Connor Nixon, will make use of the Guaranteed Time Observations, GTO, to observe the objects in the solar system from Mars and beyond. JWST cannot look back towards the Sun, so excludes the Earth, Venus or Mercury. The program is led by Dr. Heidi Hamill. In this interview, recorded in July during COSPAR 2022 in Athens, Connor Nixon talks about the GTO and his role in observing Titan using the James Webb Space Telescope. Connor Nixon, uh, you work in NASA, and uh, we're going to speak in a moment about the um, James Webb imaging uh, Titan and other solar system objects in addition to all the other fantastic work he's doing um, but you work in NASA in the US but that's not where you're originally from is it? That's right I'm from the UK I grew up in Northern Ireland in Belfast and I went to college in the UK and studied there for my uh, master's degree and PhD and uh, at that time I got involved uh, with NASA, so then I transitioned. But uh, before that, yeah, I was in the UK for quite a quite a long time. And uh, it's a Manchester connection you have as well. That's right. So uh, Manchester University is where I did my master's degree in mm-hmm. radio astronomy, mm-hmm. and um, I uh, was there for a year, uh, living at the observatory at Jodrell Bank. Uh-huh. The, the beautiful Cheshire countryside, uh-huh. and uh, yes, I used the uh, the Lovell telescope, the uh, Mark One telescope, uh-huh. for my uh, master's degree. So, um, when did you move to NASA, and, and what is it? Uh, um, which aspect of uh, space uh, research and exploration are you working on right now? That's right. So, when I was doing my PhD at Oxford University, I got involved in the Cassini 
mission. Mm -hmm. I helped to build one of the spectrometers that was a collaboration between several European countries and NASA. Uh, Oxford University had a responsibility for a, just a small piece of the instrument mm -hmm. and I got to travel back and forth and meet lots of people at NASA. Mm -hmm. So then when I graduated, I really wanted to continue on the Cassini mission. So that's what I did. I went uh, and joined the mission uh, when it was soon after launch. Right. I stayed there right, right to the end. And were you working on the spectrometer aspect of uh, That's right. It's called the Composite Infrared Spectrometer, CIRS. Right. And that's the instrument that I worked on for, yeah, for several decades and um, all the way through from before launch to after it uh, dissolved into Saturn's atmosphere. So I'm sure a lot of the um, experiences you build up during that time, during the uh, Cassini mission will inform what you're going to be doing with um, James Webb. So just take us through about uh, the uh, exploration of the Saturn system, um, which prior to uh, the main topic I want to talk about, James Webb looking at Titan, what do we know about Titan and which spacecraft and instruments have been used to provide that information? So um, the first spacecraft to really get close to Titan was the Voyager 1 mm -hmm. spacecraft, which flew by, flew by in 1980. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that we were able to get a radio signal to pass through the atmosphere from behind. Yeah. And actually told us where the solid surface was. Until that point, we actually didn't even know where the solid surface was, because all we could see was the top of the atmosphere. Mm. So um, there was actually an ambiguity about how big uh -huh. Titan was. That, that lasted until 1980. Wow. Wow. And uh, so the Voyager 1 spacecraft was diverted to make a close flyby of Titan, while the Voyager 2 spacecraft mm -hmm. um, went a different direction and went on to uh, Uranus and then Neptune. Uh, so following that, um, there were missions sent to the Jupiter system, which was Galileo, and then to the Saturn system, which was Cassini, mm -hmm. uh, Cassini-Huygens, I should say. Uh, which was a basically two spacecraft. There was an orbiter, which was a Saturn orbiter, mm -hmm. uh, built by NASA. And then there was a European part, which was the Huygens mm -hmm. uh, probe, named after Christian Huygens, the discoverer of Titan in 1655, a famous mm -hmm. a Dutch astronomer and polymath who, who did many, many things. Mm -hmm. um, that probe was sent to uh, land on Titan's surface, and that was the most distant landing and remains uh, to this point the most distant landing ever accomplished by humanity. Hmm. Uh, just going back to the uh, Voyager mission, I, I wasn't aware that that was the first time that uh, the dimension, the size of Saturn was known for the first time because of the radio transmissions from the other side. So in addition to giving you the information about the size, the physical size of, of Saturn, did that trans radio transmission through the atmosphere of Saturn give you any more indication about the nature of the atmosphere of Saturn? It did, exactly. Um, so uh, we do what's called a radio occultation measurement, mm -hmm. and there's actually a refraction that goes on. So if you've ever um, placed a, a stick in, uh, in, a, in a swimming pool or a lake, you see it kind of bends, it appears to bend at the surface, and that's refraction. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that when the, when the radio signal um, so when the spacecraft goes behind the planet, as it gradually mm -hmm. goes behind the planet, the, the radio signal goes from traveling straight through space 
to traveling through the atmosphere and at that point it begins to bend uh -huh. and the amount of bending can be can be measured so we, we know exactly where and how fast the spacecraft is traveling so we know its trajectory but then when the light ray begins to bend uh -huh. or the, the radio signal in this case um, that amount of bending gives us the density of the atmosphere and then from then we can work out other things like the temperature as well right i take it it was not sophisticated enough to give you any indication of the chemical constituents of the atmosphere. So we have to um, to get to the temperature profile. We have to make assumptions about the composition. Yeah. Um, the radio signal didn't give us that, but other instruments on Voyager did give us information about the composition. Right. So there was significant uncertainty still at that point about what the atmosphere was actually made of. Mm -hmm. um, it was thought that it could be mostly nitrogen, N2, for reasons that, um, simple reasons like it doesn't condense huh. at cold temperatures. Um, but it wasn't known for sure. Um, but then the uh, ultraviolet instrument on Voyager was actually able to measure um, ultraviolet emissions huh. from um, the N2. Mm -hmm. And that actually told us what the atmosphere was finally was, was, was made of, which is mostly uh, N2, about 95 to 98% mm -hmm. of the atmosphere is N2, and then most of the remainder is, is actually methane. And that had been known much, much earlier from 1944 from uh, another Dutch astronomer. Uh, the Dutch have a lot to do with Titan, um, <laughs> called Gerard Kuiper. Oh, yeah who um, during the war was, uh, went to McDonald Observatory in Texas mm. and observed um, absorption lines right. of methane. And that was the first clue that Titan actually had an atmosphere. Mm. And Kuiper Belt is the object um, named after him, I'm guessing, same Kuiper. Um, so Voyager, as you say, gave us uh, the first, I mean, I remember the, the the images in those days. You were yeah. far too young, I'm sure, if you were around there. And they were just spectacular. And it was actually that aspect that gave me and many, I'm sure, of my generation an interest in astronomy and space, which has never left us. Um, so Voyager was a terrific success. Um, Cassini-Huygens, as you say, two spacecraft. The Huygens was a lander. And Cassini was another tremendously successful uh, mission. What did um, both Cassini from orbit um, and the lander um, on, uh, uh, on Titan, what did we learn from those two probes that perhaps uh, informed the kind of uh, uh, observations that would be conducted by James Webb? Yeah, absolutely. So there were several really big notable discoveries about Titan. Um, probably the most uh, impressive was the discovery that it has lakes and seas of hydrocarbons on its surface, actually on the, on the North Pole, and in, interestingly, only on the North Pole and uh, not in the lower latitudes or on the South Pole, um, but only in the North Pole. Um, uh, and those lakes and seas are not water because it's too cold mm -hmm. for water to exist as a liquid. Water, in fact, forms the crust, the actual bedrock, or as we call the regolith of Titan. Right. Um, so the, uh, the surface, if you're walking around on the surface, you'd be walking around on mostly water, uh, water ice, frozen as hard as, as hard as rock. But then there's pools mm -hmm. of hydrocarbons, which are basically petroleum or um, LNG, liquefied natural gas, uh, methane, um, ethane, propane, uh, which is what you 
having those uh, tank queues for your barbecue grill. Um, so that's what's on the surface, actually, forming the lakes and seas. So that was a big discovery mm. from Cassini, uh, from the radar uh, radar instrument and the, and the imaging. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other um, uh, very interesting but a little bit less well-known discoveries was that there are dunes uh, on the surface of Titan. Um, like, so like sand dunes. Like sand dunes, except they're not made of the same material. Again, <laughs> right. so Titan being an exotic place uh, does not have that um, silicate material yeah. which makes the sand on the earth, which is kind of ground up rock. Mm-hmm. So um, in fact, the dunes are made of um, a sort of a plasticky material, which is not, not very well known. Um, but uh, it appears that uh, this stuff comes out of the atmosphere. It's kind of like a smog and these particles kind of coagulate and then um, it's dry enough on the surface that they can basically just blow around and form dunes of, um, of, of sort of small, or you can think of it as soot almost. So there is some sort of a, a weather cycle, well, it's like we have here with, with rain. On, on Titan there is winds, dunes, and I'm guessing it's the hydrocarbons that... Uh, Exactly. So on, so on Earth, we talk about hydrological cycle, which is the cycle of water um, evaporating, forming clouds, and then raining down and carving river channels or maybe glaciers, and then eventually making its way back into the, back into the ocean. Mm-hmm. So on Titan, it does have its own hydrological cycle, or sometimes we call it a methanological cycle, because nice. the substance which is, um, which is able to, to be in both a, a gaseous state and a liquid state, mm-hmm. Um, close to the surface is methane. So it turns out that the surface temperature of Titan is very close Mm -hmm. to the evaporation temperature of methane, which means you just need a tiny bit of sunlight to begin to evaporate the methane. And then it forms clouds, and then uh, it actually rains out on the surface. And we can see that there are channels Mm -hmm. carved, um, maybe a bit like we see even on Mars or certainly on the Earth, Mm -hmm. but the channels are being carved by methane flowing like a river methane rainfall and they carve channels and then they form these lakes and seas and right. we think perhaps in the past there might maybe more widespread yeah. even oceans right. of methane that are now dried up and basically where the Huygens probe landed was actually on the bed of an ancient methane ocean right. really exotic stuff yeah and, and just going back to the pools of liquid hydrocarbons near the North Pole um, first of all I'm guessing there isn't any there aren't any other bodies within the solar system with any form of liquid on the surface. And why, is, there, are there, um, is there any understanding about why they only exist in the North Pole of Titan? That's right. So um, other than the Earth, Titan is the only place where you can go to, to float a boat or um, <laughs> you know, um, put, put a submarine at least on the surface mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, go, maybe go sailing or, or, or windsurfing or, or something like that. Um, but it's a good question. Why are, the, why are the lakes and seas only on the North Pole and, and not anywhere else? So it looks like on the South Pole we see dried up um, seas. And there's, there's one uh, lake called, it's actually called Lake Ontario or Ontario Lacus <laughs> on the South Pole, um, which appears to be in the process of drying up. So um, even during the course of the mission, it appeared to kind of shrink its, its, um, its boundaries. And we think that it's... Um, uh, probably a bit, um, a bit sort of viscous, which is why I didn't 
include it when I said that all the seas were on the North Pole. There is one that's been seen on the South Pole, but it's probably a bit sort of sludgy or viscous. Right. Um, and appears to be in the process of drying up, so maybe it's more analogous to like a swampy type right. um, thing. Again, um, hydrocarbons, but we think this one is mostly um, ethane, which is a slightly heavier substance than methane. Um, now, the reason for the, for the lakes and seas being in the North Pole and not the South Pole mm-hmm. is thought to be due to um, very long cycles in the wobble of, of Titan's polar axis, mm-hmm. which basically means that at certain, um, for certain thousands of years, it gets more sunlight at one pole than the other. So that basically allows the, 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 sub, the, the liquids to migrate, you know, to when I say migrate, they're not crawling across the surface, they're evaporating yeah. and then raining out preferentially on the north and getting evaporated a little bit less on the north. So they basically all migrate. Mm-hmm. But maybe some thousands of years in the future, they would actually uh, re-evaporate and migrate back, back to the south, but not on an annual time scale, but on many thousands of years. Right. And we know that uh, there is a mission going within the next couple of years, but won't be until the next decade until it arrives, Dragonfly, that will actually um, be a quadcopter-type uh, mission. That's right. And that will uh, be able to, I don't know, uh, certainly be able to examine the surface and the atmosphere. Will it be going anywhere near these lakes, do you know? Actually, no. So the uh, you're right, the, dr- the Dragonfly... Um, mission, which is a sort of like a very big drone. Mm-hmm. It's um, sometimes called a quadcopter. It's really an octocopter. It has um, two rotors at each corner, and oh. it's sort of lifting um, a large uh, uh, sort of relocatable lander, basically something about the same size as one of the big Mars rovers like Curiosity or Perseverance, basically lifting it up and moving it a few miles at mm-hmm. a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been targeted to go to the um, equatorial parts of Titan mm-hmm. and basically it's going to land amongst these um, dunes, these hydrocarbon dune fields and uh, it's going to sort of sit sit down in the in the, in the space uh, between two dunes mm-hmm. and then it's going to sort of hop over these dunes and one of the goals is to get to a large uh, crater which is called Selk. Uh-huh. I think it's around 80 kilometers or so in size and um, one of the reasons is because the crater actually allows um, some excavation through the crust to a deeper level. So you begin to see a little bit of sort of what's below the surface. Hmm. And uh, so that's where, that's where the mission is, is sent. Um, part of that is also due to the fact that when you get to the, the poles, communication can be a little bit more difficult depending on which season you're in. Obviously, there's a, there's a winter season hmm. at the poles where basically you're out of sight from the earth. Hmm. Um, so the uh, equatorial regions are, are good for communication. And um, um, it's, it won't be accompanied by an orbiter, so it will be transmitting to Earth from the surface of Titan. Direct to Earth from the surface, that's right. And it's quite a thick atmosphere. I'm sure that will help with, uh, uh, with flight compared to what um, amazing but difficult job that Ingenuity has on the surface of Mars. Um, that's going to be a challenge for communication because you've got all this haze between the um, quadcopter uh, and the uh, dragonfly and Earth. I'm sure all the maths has been done, but um, it's quite a, quite a challenge transmitting from the surface of a planet which is quite heavily veiled with something or other most of the time. 
Yeah, so fortunately the atmosphere is relatively transparent to radio waves. The same is not true at shorter wavelengths with um, you know with visible light and infrared and so on. Once you get to long enough wavelengths, the atmosphere is is, is pretty transparent. Um, the particles that are in the atmosphere are, are very small, mm-hmm. so they don't tend to um, scatter mm-hmm. um, those long wavelengths as much as they scatter um, short wavelengths. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a property of scattering which means that once the the wavelength gets similar to the size of the particle, you get a lot of scattering. But when you get to much longer wavelengths, it's sort of transparent. Um, there is an issue with power. You know, getting a signal um, all the way back to the Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, Takes, takes a lot of power, mm-hmm. and you've got to make sure you, you, you point in the right place. So there's a there's a cone that you want to aim towards, <clears throat> and the signal is going to be pretty weak, mm-hmm. and it's going to it's going to trickle it's going to trickle back not very quickly. But um, given that the mission is nuclear powered, right. it's going to last some years. So we'll get get a lot of information back. Well, that sounds really exciting. Um, so Cassini lasted for almost two decades, but the lander. Huygens is very short, so you have some understanding of the environment in which Dragonfly will will, will operate. And I'm guessing in just the same way that um, Voyager informed Cassini, Cassini will inform the kind of observations you'll conduct from James Webb. So first of all, it is quite remarkable, and uh, I hadn't appreciated uh, early on, that James, James Webb will be looking at uh, objects within our solar system. So um, I understand that's something that was in the design from the outset. That's right. Uh, so there's a program um, called uh, uh, GTO, uh, Guaranteed Time Observations, specifically for the solar system. There's other similar programs for astrophysics and exoplanets and so on. But there is a um, guaranteed time program within the solar system where uh, around 100 hours, a little over 100 hours, are set aside mm-hmm. in the first cycle, um, JWST cycle one, mm-hmm. to look at all the objects in the solar system that are further away from the sun mm-hmm. than JWST, because it cannot look closer to the sun, because that would mean turning its sunshade in such a way that it gets it gets sun on its uh, radiator, and that's not allowed. Um, it's an infrared right. telescope, and it has to stay cold. Mm-hmm. So it can point at Mars or anything beyond Mars. So that includes the giant planets, mm-hmm. the satellites of the giant planets, the Kuiper Belt, and many, many asteroids, right. and even some asteroids that will um, cross the orbit of the Earth, mm-hmm. as long as we see them when they're Beyond the orbit of the Earth, yes, they're called NEOs, near Earth asteroids. Um, so all those will be studied um, by uh, JWST. In fact, as I understand it, right now there's some uh, further commissioning right. underway, um, which is basically to uh, to check that the telescope can can turn fast enough mm-hmm. to track some of the faster asteroids. So its oh. its speed has been um, validated up to a certain amount, right. and they're now trying to push that. Right. A little bit further to see slightly, slightly faster asteroids, but uh, uh, Titan is one of those objects that JWST will be looking at in its first year, and I have the good fortune to uh, be the, the the lead or the delegated uh, uh, deputy for um, for the web uh, solar system observations, specifically of Titan. So um, I've seen these terrific um, spectra of exoplanets released 
this last week uh, of um, the, the atmospheres of exoplanets taken by the James Webb. I'm guessing that's one of the things that uh, you'll be asking uh, that James Webb observations will look at the atmosphere of Titan from its uh, L2 point. Absolutely. So one of the reasons why we're so fascinated by Titan is that it's the only moon in the solar system uh, that has a substantial atmosphere. Um, there's a couple of other very tenuous atmospheres, but Titan really has a dense atmosphere. And in that sense, it's much more like one of the terrestrial planets like Mars mm-hmm. or Venus. Um, but at the same time, its atmospheric composition is radically different than Mars or Venus. So those planets uh, and also the Earth have um, an oxidizing atmosphere mm-hmm. with um, you know, oxygen, CO2, those sort of substances. Mm-hmm. But there's a lack of oxygen in the atmosphere of Titan. And that means that substances such as methane mm-hmm. can react in what we call organic chemistry, right. um, which basically can form very large, complex substances, mm-hmm. uh, which could be of great interest um, for perhaps forming precursor chemicals that could be, you know, could have been used uh, to form life mm-hmm. uh, back at the start of the solar system. Mm-hmm. So Titan's like a unique natural experiment underway that, you know, that we can look at. Uh, as I said, the only moon with, it, with an atmosphere and with the Webb telescope, um, it's perfect for the job of actually looking at the chemistry mm-hmm. of the atmosphere. So it turn, turns out that molecules have, um, have vibrations. Mm-hmm. Once you get two or more atoms and form a molecule, um, the molecule can interact uh, with uh, radiation by, by, by vibrating. Mm-hmm. And uh, these can form different modes, like stretching modes or scissoring modes. And all those um, actually appear in the infrared part of the spectrum. So, some exciting, you mentioned chemistry, but you know, there's a lot of organics out there. And uh, I guess this is the exciting bit. You're not quite sure what you'll find when you start looking. So um, you've got some time uh, on James Webb to look at Titan. What sort of schedule and what we'll be looking at and when do you think you'll be publishing some results? Yes. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of uh, interest and uh, even a little bit of um, you know, pressure to, yeah. to get results out quickly. <laughs> so one of, the, um, one of the issues about the guaranteed time observation is that normally when you apply for time competitively on a telescope mm-hmm. you get what's called a proprietary period yeah. that means that the the pi the principal investigator of the data mm-hmm. uh, gets typically a year to look at the data right. before it goes on general release right. now in this particular circumstance um the uh, the bargain that was made to get this set aside mm-hmm. program was that it would be sort of like community service so basically the data would be um would be given without competition to a bunch of scientists, including myself, uh-huh. to design the observations, but then we don't own it. Right. So it becomes public immediately. There's no proprietary period. So in effect, we could be in a little bit of a race, you know, to um, to look at the data before um, everyone else in the world gets gets their chance to, to weigh in. Mm-hmm. Although I would say that we. Um, at least the, the Titan group that I'm leading, which is about a dozen people, mm-hmm. um, are really the experts in looking at this type of data. So I think we'll, um, we'll, we'll be able to do a pretty good job uh, pretty quickly. So usually the, the, the principal investigator and the team he or she leads get this t- 
time period when they can look at the data and publish papers. In this instance, there's no time period allocated to them. It goes straight out to the public. I suppose, um, I'm sure some individuals will be disappointed, especially those who put the time and effort in building the instruments for them. But I'm guessing that as a consequence, there'll be many more papers released, perhaps sooner or earlier than uh, otherwise would have been the case. That's right. So there's a trend now towards um, having this open access to data. So that, um, for example, the ALMA telescope observatory, which I've used quite a bit in mm-hmm. Chile, which is a, uh, an array or a network of radio antennas, mm-hmm. uh, the data is, is proprietary. It's exclusive to the PI for one year. Right. And then after that point, it goes in a, in a data archive online, which is which is searchable, right. free. Uh-huh. Uh, anyone in the world can go on their website, download ALMA data, and begin to do science with it. And the idea is that it will increase the amount of science papers, as you mentioned, that come from these very expensive facilities by basically allowing use and then reuse and reuse and reuse of the data as other people do it. Whereas in the past, mm-hmm. um, observatories tended to be private and then they tended to just hold on to their data and not make it public and you'd have to put in a special request. Right. Um, so the, the idea is that um, you basically get more bang for your buck, right? You get more science papers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the for the expenditure that goes into acquiring the data, uh, yeah, that's a compromise and fair compromise, I guess. So, um, in terms of schedule, when do you think you will have that uh, uh, first access to the James Webb to look at Titan, and roughly when will we see the the results publicly? Yeah, it's very exciting. The uh, data is coming quite soon in uh, October. Right. Uh, the observations of Titan are taking place over a couple of different uh, time periods, but mm-hmm. basically stretching from early October to early November. Right. So we should get images in October, right. uh, the first images uh-huh. from Webb of Titan. Right. We'll be very excited to look at those and see if there's uh, dramatic changes mm-hmm. since uh, Cassini. We'll be looking at the haze. We'll be looking through the haze to the surface mm-hmm. at some wavelengths. And uh, we'll be looking for clouds and meteorology and seeing if there's any... Um, we know that there's methane storms, for example, on Titan. Uh, Cassini caught just one big storm. Um, so it saw, it saw a, uh, a storm front sweeping across Titan that was um, huge, I think 1,500 kilometers long. And it was sort of sweeping across like a, like a storm front and appeared to darken the surface uh, with methane rainfall, which then later re-evaporated and the surface went back to its original color. So we'll be looking for that type of, of event if we're lucky. Um, but um, we'll definitely be looking at the, at the surface. And one of the things that Webb will do with its spectroscopy is telling us more about the composition of the surface. Now, I'm sure the... Um Cassini had a, a, a much smaller uh, aperture um, instrument um, compared to James Webb, but James Webb's much further away. That's right. The resolution uh, uh, provided by James Webb won't be anywhere near what Cassini provided, I take it. That's right. You're right. It's, um, it's a much bigger telescope, but it's much, much further away. Um, you know, here we're um, close to uh, nine or ten astronomical units from uh, from. Saturn, which is an astronomical unit, being the distance from the Earth to the Sun, um, so close to uh, a billion miles of that order. So it's pretty far, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, even with Webb, uh, we'll be uh, a little bit limited. So we're expecting at the very 
best, which is at the shortest wavelengths, we'll get about 30 pixels across, which means we'll get something that's about 30 by 30 in our image. So sort of 900 you know, sort of pixels, that sort, that sort of level. Um, as we go to longer wavelengths, um, there's an effect which means that the um, the pixels get bigger. Right. So we'll get to um, at the at the middle part of the infrared, we'll get sort of ten by ten, right. um, ten by ten grid on Titan, and um, yeah, I mean it, it's not going to be as as sharp as obviously as Cassini. Right. But one of the good things about Webb is that it will give us many more wavelengths that we didn't see before. Mm. And uh, uh, I'm sure. Looking at the spectra of the exoplanet, the spectroscopy element of uh, uh, James Webb, looking at Titan is going to be quite spectacular, even though it's so far away. Um, just one final thing. Um, the, we've been speaking about Titan, but what's the program for James Webb looking at other bodies within the solar system? Is, that, is there a schedule that you're aware of already? That's right. So this um, solar system guaranteed time uh, program which is led by a great scientist called Heidi Hamill in the United States um, is a sort of umbrella program which has uh, about a dozen different components in it including Mars observations, um, Titan which is the one that I'm involved with, giant planets um, led by uh, Lee Fletcher who's at Leicester University in the United Kingdom and uh, asteroids comets and uh, other, other objects uh, we'll be searching for plumes uh, on, on Europa and all sorts of exciting stuff. So all this uh, solar system science is being spread out over the first year. So approximately from this summer to, to next next summer, maybe a little bit over a year. And um, uh, you'll see those pictures coming out, pictures of uh, Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Uranus and Neptune, mm-hmm. which uh, will be very exciting because they've uh, not been visited by a spacecraft in a very long time, um, Uranus in 1986 and, mm. and Neptune in 1989 by Voyager 2, and nothing since then. So the web pictures will be really amongst some of the best images that we've had since since that time. And when that happens, maybe even later this year, uh, I'd like to catch up with you again once that information is available. Absolutely. And for the time being, uh, Dr. Connor Nixon, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Gerber. It's been a real pleasure talking to you.